0: Welcome back. This is episode 67 of Herbological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Uh, we have a Patreon episode. Am I correct?
1: You are correct, sir. Mhm.
0: What's it all about? What do we got?
1: So this is a Patreon episode for Richard Southworth. So thanks very much, Richard. And Richard has selected the topic of Costa Rican herps, Costa Rican herpetofauna, And so the second half of the podcast will be specifically about Costa Rican herpetofauna. But the first half, Richard requested a, pod, a paper, which is about, well, loosely about Kitrid, the fungus, um, but actually how it pertains to snakes in Panama. So not a million miles away from Costa Rica, um, but not strictly speaking Costa Rica, but close, close enough. You know, a stone's throw,
0: and I think more importantly, has very direct implications for Costa Rican pedafauna, probably. Yes, you can assume the things discovered by this paper probably also also pertain to uh, to Costa Rica.
1: Yep, and other Central American countries, and probably right. probably even yeah further afield than that. Uh, as time goes
0: by, I would have thought potentially, potentially. It's, it's you know you don't want to overgeneralize things but um, yeah
1: (laughs) yeah it doesn't look good it doesn't look good but uh yeah basically so it's going to start off a little bit um bleak so buckle up for some bleakness although you know bleak with some interesting tidbits but then hopefully the latter half of the episode we'll be having a great time talking about some cool costa rican animals
0: yeah yeah so this first paper uh, is by Zipkin, Derenzno, Ray, Rossman, and Lips. It was published in 2020 in Science. Tropical snake diversity collapses after widespread amphibian loss. Oof. Heavy. Yeah,
1: heavy, heavy-duty, you know. When you pair the word amphibian with the word loss, you're in for some dark times ahead, friend.
0: But crazy important, right? I think oh, this yeah. is something that I have repeatedly... Uh, been frustrated by is the lack of evidence for snake population changes in tropical areas. This paper is a step towards that, I would certainly say. they, As, as we'll get in, uh, into a bit more of the details later on, this isn't an easy study to do by any means. Uh, snakes are notoriously tricky to find. We had a whole, what was it, last episode with the whole detection probability issue yeah. and the whole detectability issue i tropical snake stuff is plagued by that low detectability issue for the most part i mean there are snakes that are easier to find than others for sure but when you're doing or trying to get a handle on overall snake uh diversity or overall snake abundance you are going to be having tough times to be you know it, it's impressive that they managed to get anything at all.
1: Yeah, this is a study changes. It looks simple from the outset, but then you realise what would have gone into this, and it is mm. yeah, it's pretty tricky. Um, so yeah, this is a paper in Science, which you know the OG of science, and so. Yeah, we've kind of briefly touched on the fact that it's loosely pertaining to amphibian loss. Well, it's actually majorly pertaining to amphibian loss. But yeah, um, we've talked about it on the podcast loads of times, haven't we? Chytrid, chytridiomycosis, the infectious disease in amphibians. Um, if you're not aware of it, it kind of really hit the center stage in about 2004. And a whole bunch of amphibians suffered dramatic declines. Um, there were some extinctions. Am I right in saying that?
0: I am pretty I positive there are extinctions that are... I'm not sure if they're the sort of extinctions that you can say exclusively connected to a disease, but certainly the, the disease is part of... Uh, it played a major role. Yeah. Certainly with um, with this specific area we're talking about in this paper, they say around 30 species were likely extirpated as a result uh, of chytrid. Yeah, so, and that's, that's
1: in this one national park... So, you know, you scale those effects up to, you know, the wider Central American region. And yeah, this was a big, big problem. And um, yeah, the frogs and toads, they just weren't equipped to deal with this uh, chytrid fungus, which is a fungus that grows on the skin as a result of this um, fungal pathogen. And yeah many many species suffer dramatic declines and this particular paper is taking place in panama in a national park called Parque national gd omar torrijos herrera um, which is eight kilometers north of el cop or el cope um and they refer to their study site as el cope and yeah prior to this chytrid fungus tearing through there were more than 70 species and as you said, Ben, the kitchen fungus came and 30 of those species can no longer be found in the area. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's a pretty dramatic effect. And when you consider that that many frogs are now missing from the environment, it seems well, if you start thinking about it and if you've got any awareness of like the, the theory of trophic cascades, if you take that many animals out of the equation and they reckon they're talking about 75% less frogs in terms of numbers of individual frogs. So that's a big, big change to the ecosystem. And, you know, inevitably, that's probably going to have some, inevitably, probably, but it's likely to have some quite serious knock-on effects for the ecosystem at large. And that's what they were trying to find out in this paper. They were trying to find out if the reduction, this dramatic reduction in the diversity and abundance of frogs had had an impact, or could be correlated with at least, the numbers of snake species that were occurring in the area that they could find.
0: Yeah, so how, do, how did they do this, really? So you've got this, this pre-disease period and this post-disease period with the disease, as you said, popping up 2004-ish, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And again, really singing praise of how much effort went into into this work. You're talking about seven years of repeated transects before 2004, then another six years of those same repeated transects after 2004. So what are they talking of? 594 surveys and then 513 surveys. A huge amount of work, huge amount of labor going to repeatedly looking for snakes along the same routes, controlling for as much as you can. So you've got this sort of... You know that the changes you observe are down to changes in the snakes and not changes in how you were looking for the snakes. Yeah. Um, and that's another important point to bring up is... That there were no major structural changes to the habitat, uh, any changes to water quality, pollution, anything along those lines between this pre and post Kitrid uh, emergence in this area. So they sounds very confident that it is a di- the uh, very confident it's a disease related change, not a change based on habitat degradation or anything like else like that. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that they found it hard to find the snakes. So last episode we were talking about just the difficulty of finding snakes and how it was taking, you know, if you had they had 20, 20 snakes and it was going to take thousands of hours for a human being to spot them all. Well, in this study, right. they they were doing those same walking those same jungle paths, their transects for 13 years and over that time they saw, they saw 36 snake species. But for 12 of those species they only saw one individual the entire time. So they saw one individual one time, and that was the entire representation that species had, despite being presumably, at least for part of the study, present in that environment. So yeah, that really, you know, snakes, we really can't iterate this enough. Snakes are so hard to find.
0: And why, I mean, why does that matter? Okay, it makes it harder to study them in general, but more specifically, if you can't repeatedly detect a snake, there are very few... uh, methods you can do to work out whether that change is down to just lack of survey effort or a actual change in snake occurrence so it's, it's one of these things where it just boosts the uncertainty not knowing whether you're actually detecting a change or whether it's just down to random chance and yeah. when it comes to a study like this being able to pull apart whether it's random chance or not is incredibly important and yeah because if you can't, well, then you're not saying anything. You, you haven't discovered anything. You've just discovered a bunch of noise, essentially. Yeah, it makes things very difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so what they were trying to do was they were trying to compare the occurrence of species before Kytrid came through and after Kytrid came through to see if the sudden lack of frogs had had an influence on snake the snakes they could find in the area. And there were quite a few species they managed to get good numbers of encounters on, and They actually had mixed fates with regards to the numbers that they were seen in before and after, or with regards to their probability of occurrence before and after. Um, Basically, there were some which seemed to be more likely to be around, and others which seemed to be less likely around, but there were more which seemed to be less likely than more likely. So for the snakes overall, there seemed to be a reduction in the amount that could be found post-Kitchard compared to well, the, the number
0: of species as opposed to amount
1: yes yeah yeah
0: because they're not actually looking at any measure of abundance or density or something it's, it's looking at whether yeah. they detect that species or not it's so That's... hard to
1: talk about this stuff without using like generic terms like the amount of snake like amount of it species is. rather than amount of snakes yeah it's a really important yes. distinction
0: yes but it, it, it is an important distinction because they're telling you two different things about the ecosystem yeah and this is this is a change in diversity as opposed to a change in abundance although although you would sort of assume that the abundance thing is going to be following on for the ones that are harder to find because you would assume that you're going to find more snakes if if there are more snakes yeah Yeah. (laughs) because there's more to find you're going to have an easier time finding them so they are sort of tied together um but that being said, there were also, you know, there were some species that did better, right?
1: Yeah, and I have to say, my favourite snake from that region, probably one of my favourite <laughs> snakes, did really, really well. It seemed to be way more likely to occur after Kitrid than before, and that's um, yeah. Bothryekis Schliegli, the eyelash palm pit viper, which is, um, I mean, it's like.
0: A lot of it's people, a crowd pleaser.
1: It is a crowd pleaser. And a lot of people who are into snakes, if you say, they're like, what's your favorite snake? You're like, I like eyelash pit vipers. And they're just like, yeah, whatever, mate. <laughs> Standard choice. You like it because it's yellow, do you? But um, I mean, they are bright yellow and that's difficult to, it's difficult to ignore. And they do have adorable little eyelashes and the classic like viperine head shape. They're super cool. Yeah, um,
0: they're, they're damn good. Damn good.
1: Yeah. So we got the eyelash pit viper doing better. We've got a species of a mantides doing better, which is like a blunt headed Tree snake. Um, there's a slug-eating snake which seems to be doing well, or, or more likely to occur afterwards. But then you've also got a whole host of species which are doing worse afterwards. And as I said, there's more well doing worse. They they, they are less likely to be occurring after Kitcher has gone. One of which is Sibon argus, which is the argus snail. <laughs> it's hard to say that the argus snail-sucking snake which is a lovely bit of alliteration. And it's a species that can hook snails out of their shells. And um, it's really beautiful. It's got like rusty red blotches on a green background. It actually has very similar coloration to one of the popular or common color morphs of the eyelash palm pit viper, funnily enough. So whether or not that's some kind of... Whether or not they're both just camouflaged or whether that's actually um, some kind of aposemitism, I don't know. But um, yeah, they've got these really weird skinny bodies just like any other snail or slugging snake big bulbous head these massive eyes um but the thing that makes the argus snail sucking snake interesting in this context is that it's also known to eat amphibian eggs and if you google it one of the first photos that come up is it eating some red-eyed tree frog eggs as an example of a species eating those (laughs) eggs so at least for this species which is less likely to occur after chytrids come through there's a really obvious link with amphibians and there's potential that they could be a species which is at least somewhat reliant on the breeding success of amphibians which is obviously dramatically dampened following this fungus um
0: and certainly something like eggs you'd imagine that's quite a boom and bust cycle so they might already be uh i don't know potentially uh, quite in tune with the the breeding success or not of certain frogs perhaps more so than more generalist species i think that's quite a safe assumption
1: yeah 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 and we've talked before about how um explosively good or bad amphibian breeding success can be year to year i mean it varies right. wildly depending on like a host of environmental and other conditions so they probably are a species which uh is resilient to that boom or bust cycle and obviously they eat snails on the side so they're not entirely reliant but uh, it certainly seems as though there's been an effect
0: so just to provide a little bit of context a little bit of the numbers that are behind these these findings so the species that did sort of poorly, uh, pre detections something like 13, 4, 149, 21, 5, 4, stuff like that. A lot of the post-detections, you're looking at zeros, 1s, 8, uh, 49 from that 149. So 100 fewer detections post 2004. And pretty much for the ones that are doing better, you're looking at uh, mid-teens, low-10s, up to things like 40s, 50s. Right. So just looking at the raw numbers, you do just, you know, just by eyeballing it, you do see that the uh, something's going on and it is borne out by the uh, the stats they did as well. Yeah. You know, pr- pretty, pretty confidently too. Um, it is worth saying that, okay, they had, again, raw numbers again, 30 species detected pre-2004, 21 detected post-2004. The sort of uh, estimations being that there's maybe 50 species pre and around 40 species post. But there's definitely a change of a lot of species to fewer species. That's pretty confident. Um, The more looking at specific species, or as we'll go into a little minute, uh, body condition and things, they didn't have enough data because like, you just can't find these snakes. If you're talking about a snake that you detected four times pre-detection then never post-detection you're not actually going to have enough data to work out whether body condition changed or species specific uh, changes so there's this this almost hierarchy of analysis that did with this overall community thing where they could put all the data together then they broke it down to a species specific level of whether they found them or not and then they broke it down further into more subtle changes in body condition for the species that they had enough data to work with and So body condition stuff, they managed to do it for six species, right? Yeah. yeah. And they found four out of six. Not only are these snakes doing worse off in terms of detection, so sort of lower occurrence rates, they seem to be looking less healthy in terms of body mass as well. And that's uh, body condition, which is like grams per centimetre squared. I think it is.
1: Something like that, yeah. It's some measure of yeah. the chubbiness of a snake.
0: Yeah, there's so many different ways to do body condition. I can't remember which one they did. I should probably check. <coughs> oh, it's just it. It's an index of some person's name. <laughs> <laughs> um, Snakes mass divided by standardized snout vent length squared. Right. So, yeah, and those higher number, better condition. Lower number, worse condition.
1: Yeah, and all six of them were. Um, in some way less well off, right? But there was four that were well, No, so two actually were two actually were more or less two, the same. Two weren't they? were
0: two were technically better by the estimates, but there's so much uncertainty over the estimates that there's a lot of overlap between the body condition pre and the body condition post, so you can't be that confident saying that there was an increase, I don't think. Certainly the decreases are quite substantially different.
1: Yeah. And um, so, yeah, there was four snakes that they could say with certainty or with some some sense of um, sureness that were sort of less healthy in terms of their body condition after the chytrid fungus had been. Um, Sibonargus, which is the... Um, Argus's snail sucker, we've already mentioned, was one of them. Another species of uh, Sibon, Sibon annulatus, the ringed snail sucker. Um, Imanitides kenshoa, I'm not sure how you pronounce that one, which is that mad little blunt-headed tree snake. um, The sort of brown and white one. And they're frog and lizard eaters, so it stands to reason that they have um, suffered. And the last one, which I thought was interesting, was uh, Oxybellus brevirostris, Cope's vine snake. And there's actually I was like, well, they didn't say anything explicit about that snake in the paper, but I thought I would look and see if they do eat um, amphibians or some, you know, amphibian eggs or tadpoles, whatever. And actually, there's a 2011 paper by doctors Julie Ray and Karen Lips, who are both co-authors on this paper and um, sure enough this is a quote from a paper they published in 2011 about cope's fine snake it says from arboreal attack sites members of the genus oxybellus feed on a variety of primarily terrestrial prey including amphibians and lizards so you mm. know that they're, they're an amphibian eating snake
0: what's what's interesting with them is their detections pre and post were the same so pretty ambiguous whether they're actually doing worse in terms of occurrence but the body condition provides an avenue that's sort of like hmm, no they are probably doing worse even if it hasn't been picked up in the occurrence data yet mm. and which that's is kind a, of interesting
1: that's cool it's that's why it's cool to have this duality of explanations or sort of two lines of evidence because yeah yeah you know. i think
0: one one terms for it uh they're using the social sciences is triangulation using multiple lines of evidence to investigate essentially the same question
1: triangulation mm.
0: yeah well i like that as a term
1: Same here. Yeah. Um, So basically, I think the sort of take home message of this is that when there have been major ecological changes, you end up with a situation where species which are specialist or have, you know, unusual niches, narrow niche breadth. I mean, that is a bit of a generalization. There's not necessarily strong evidence for that here. They haven't gone into that. But like, generally speaking, when you have major perturbations, there tends to be more success if you're a generalist species afterwards generalist species than if you're um a very specific unusual you know species inhabiting in a weird little niche and um it certainly appears as though from this data that's kind of the case i think uh Certainly, um, the Irish Palm Pit Vipers, I think, are quite generous. They're quite tolerant. Whereas some of those other species they've named, which are amphibian eaters, maybe are declining or not as healthy as they were before. Um, mm. But the, the take-home message, I think, is that like when you have a massive change, like these, lo- this loss of frogs, there can be a trophic cascade. And it's something which we need to focus on. And it's difficult to gather evidence for, but um, it is worth the effort because ecosystems can deteriorate in pretty subtle ways that aren't really immediately obvious, Um, especially when it's the difference between spending six years finding 20 less species of snake. I mean, that's crazy. Like you just couldn't do that overnight. And yet that seems to be quite a major change that's been enacted in this environment, be it from frogs or not.
0: Yeah. And I think there's that sort of added, okay, trophic cascades are occurring and there's decent evidence for that. I think the other sort of aspect of it is trophic cascades are really hard to detect you know that's a complex thing to you know you've got to id the change in your 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 frogs or your plants or whatever that is is kicking off the trophic cascade then you've actually got to id what's eating them and probably what amounts at least get an idea of what you should be looking at and then you've got to detect the population changes or occurrence changes in this case in your predator species which tend to occur at lower densities therefore making that trickier um And then a whole detectability thing of snakes added on top of that. Really, really tough. I think that, okay, there's still some uncertainty left in this paper. They had to sort of slightly um, deal with some of their lower uh, detected species in a sort of odd way in their community model because they couldn't do species specific uh, detectability probabilities on all their species so it's a little bit of sort of borrowed power from other or borrowed estimations from other species to sort of make up for that so there is a little bit of added uncertainty here but I think the way it marries up with the biology of the system you know previous examples like you're saying of trophic cascades narrowing diversity towards more generalist species and stuff is all sort of tallying up and I think their final point is sort of saying hey biodiversity loss is occurring we need more work in the tropics where where there's a lot of species under threat let's sort of let's sort of uh let's get on with sort of detecting these sort of hard to detect problems and and tackling them This this one it feels like everybody's known it for a long time that this this should be occurring or could be occurring and it just takes so much effort to do it's it's it's, i don't know I'm, I'm, i'm like two minds like great finally it's happened that someone's all these things together over however many years what was it 13, 13 years. years of work plus probably another year or so of, of getting the paper together and doing the you know pretty complicated modeling to be frank it's yeah i don't know it, it feels it feels like an, a, a vindication of what people have felt was, are occurring but at the same time it's sort of disheartening because you're like wow it's taken this long to get <laughs> to get a handle on it but like Mm, it does take that long it is it's a difficult system to to work with trophic cascades are difficult and uh you know not big fancy fancy mammals maybe you know
1: yeah it's just cool little snakes that are doing worse because there's no frogs Also, it seems
0: yeah absolutely yeah i I mean the, the whole result everything absolutely fascinating uh would love to see it done similarly in in more tropical regions well actually just anywhere you know anything that like the next step see if you can do abundance changes on snakes over a decent period of time because i have not seen anything that's done that as well as i'd like in tropical regions i'm Mm. sure there's some i'm sure there's some stuff out there but it's i mean it's just difficult dude these snakes are hard to find and and to get you know, year on year on year funding to to do something long term is is very tricky. So massive respect.
1: Yeah. Shout out to the surveyors. <laughs> yeah, right. Whoever you might be, well done.
0: <laughs> well, just everybody involved, to be honest, yeah, mate. It's just really cool. Really, really neat. So that was Panama, where
1: the situation for snakes maybe not ideal. There are still lots of snakes there, so don't lose hope completely. But now I think it's time we move over to costa rica which is home to some frankly bombastic animals and yeah we basically decided to do this portion a little bit differently um rather than both reading the same thing we've gone away and each found one thing which we think is cool or at least interesting there actually was a surprising paucity of available literature on or at least like noteworthy well i think it's on on costa rican reptiles
0: i i think the issue is when you're searching for stuff uh certainly papers and things location of the study is very rarely an important aspect certainly the way way sort of bigger studies are framed they tend to frame themselves as not location specific because that's you know that's reducing impact and generalizability and sort of readership right So journals are less keen for that sort of stuff. So there is a tendency to make things more general than perhaps they should be. And the upshot is when you're searching for stuff, location is perhaps not as big a deal in, say, a title or a keyword or even an abstract than, you know, like a generalized theory or something like that. Yeah? Yeah. So I feel like that's what sort of harmed us looking for Costa Rican Herb stuff. Not that it's not there. It's just you've got to find the right level of specificness, which can Mm. be tricky sometimes.
1: Yeah, but we settled on... I mean, I've got a little note, an observational note of a cool thing happening. You're going to go first, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I can go first. I have a little note from uh, Mesoamerican Herpetology, uh, published in 2016. By uh, Paniagua and the Barker. Phanatosis from four poorly known toads of the genus Incleus uh, from the highlands of Costa Rica. Phanatosis? Death veining? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, everybody knows that animals are notorious cowards. And the best way to <laughs> avoid yeah. being eaten is to be so cowardly and. <laughs> <laughs> just to give up and to fall over onto your back and pretend you're already dead and not worth eating, right?
1: Yeah, it does. It works. I mean, it's worked on me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 worked for me. <laughs> just <laughs> get spooked by a big pigeon or a or a deer. Just <laughs> fall on the floor and they leave. <laughs> 100% never never of the been time. attacked by a deer. Yeah, works for me. But no. So, death feigning. It's it's a little bit difficult to know exactly how widespread it is in uh, in frogs and stuff. They suggested around 1.5 percent of species, so 6,554 species, 1.5 percent potentially do it. But we're going back to that whole situation of we don't actually know for a whole heap of species. So maybe mm. it's more prevalent than that. And these guys wanted to check this genus. Uh, inclius whether whether they do it so cue a trip to costa rica to freak out some toads and see if they uh see if they give up (laughs) so
1: (laughs) like i can imagine at customs what's the purpose of your visit yeah like it's hard to explain it sounds a little weird out of context but we want to find out (laughs) if when we slap a toad around will it pretend to be dead so yeah cool (laughs) Stamp the passport, get inside.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a slightly weird one, but kind of interesting. And they didn't slap around the toads. That's, that's, a, that's a gross exaggeration. It's <laughs> done very delicately. Um, so people ventured into the pre-montane and lower montane rainforests of Costa Rica. And they found some toads. And the sort of general, general rule of thumb with these toads was if they were found on top of the leaf litter, they would try and escape by just walking away. <laughs> which it, there's just something about using the verb walking when trying to escape that <laughs> amuses me if they found them lower down in the leaf litter they'd just sit tight and stay still so okay in the rainforest finding some toads next step first thing poke the toad see if it moves okay pretty standard but really what we're talking about is if you get the toad and you put it on its back you then sort of checking how long does it stay on its back because it's, it's you're only going to get this this death feigning when the toad is actually being grabbed because they're going to rely on cryptsis or just getting out of there, then, you know their first reaction isn't to pretend to be dead, they'd get nothing done they'd be spooked constantly and they'd always be pretending to be dead it it, it, it just wouldn't work, so grab toad put it on back see how long it's staying there then sort of gently prod it maybe tug on the legs a little bit you know slight agitation see if how much or or what facilitates the toad to realise its death feigning isn't working and get up and go Uh, they found four toad species that they were working with the first two similar sort of reactions, this was uh, Incleus how are we going with this? Chompipe, chompipe, I guess and uh, Incleus Epioticus
1: what do these toads look like? How big are they? are they big boys?
0: I don't think they're very big. It, it's, it's shameful that I don't have a little SVL measurement there. But the pictures showed them of a variety of sizes because uh, they had juveniles and they had adults. How do you spell inclius? Uh, I-N-C-I-L-I-U-S. <laughs>
1: I would have said that said incilius.
0: Incilius, not Incleus. Well, Sorry. yes, I suppose that would be fair.
1: <laughs> they're pretty nice though aren't they they're pretty varied actually from the uh google search i've just done there's a lot of variety
0: i think there's quite a few species yeah. and they're sort of quite uh quite sort of buffo bufo esque shape i would say paratoid glands the whole bang yeah some of them have a nice stripe down the middle of them tend to be In- sort of brown reddish colors
1: very obvious tympanum
0: yeah Ear yeah hole. i mean they're good they're good looking totes hmm some of the stripey and green, they're good. So these, these two, they'd give up for quite a while. 20 to 160 seconds, they are just they'd chill there. Only really try to escape once. So you got to, before even that, picture this toad. It's on its back, it's got its legs laid out, its eyes are open. It's just chilling there. Doing nothing until you tug on the legs. Then it's like, all right, this has failed. I'm getting <laughs> out.
1: So they'll play dead until you start yanking on them, and then they stop. Yeah, those
0: those, those two species. Hmm. Moving on to uh, Incleus uh, Guanacasti, they they weren't having any of it. They just immediately left. Apart from one juvenile that stayed on its back for several minutes, like they they weren't they weren't having it. Not at all. They were gone. And on our fourth toad, Inkleus uh, <laughs> Hol, holrigi Holrigii, they they were the laziest. They were the most committed to their craft to their uh, to their acting. They wouldn't even move when their legs were tugged. Really? They tr- they were really trying, man. They were really trying.
1: They're cool toads, actually. They're pretty wild looking. They look like they look like. Um, well, I'm gonna really uh, out myself as a huge nerd, but they look like Spore Frog from Magic: The Gathering.
0: Ah, of course.
1: You won't not get I, that reference.
0: No, no, sorry.
1: Pretty cool little card.
0: <laughs> one drop, one one. <laughs> So that was our sort of, our four toads, a diversity of reactions, all did it to some extent, perhaps, I don't know, um, certainly the different species dealing with it in different different amounts. In terms of future questions, well, one is, who's eaten these toads? Don't really know yet. Um, there was an interesting mention of a Novak and Robinson paper from 1975 who described finding... In in their words, mutilated toads with missing limbs. Um, it was a little bit unclear whether the toads were still alive or not. I think they were. I think, <laughs> I think they found toads that had bits taken out of their legs and things.
1: That's quite common, isn't it? A lot of mammals know how to do that because toads are poisonous, and they right. They ignore the paratoids.
0: They were they were potentially suggesting maybe this was birds in this case, mm. but certainly it leaves some some questions. And certainly it appears that, to some extent, either the uh, death feigning or toxicity or something seems to be stopping a predator that is getting a hold of these toads to some extent. Certainly getting to them. You know, Cripsis has failed. Um, but some additional defense is working. So, mm. hmm. A lot of questions. Uh, four quite cool toads lying on their backs pretending to be dead. Basically, a paper that's expanding our knowledge of, of death feigning in toads and and frogs a whole heap because apparently, I mean, it seems like there's a lot more. Yeah, people are people are describing frogs every day, so I mean, it's a losing battle trying to trying to cover the entire breadth of uh, frogs in terms of de- detecting death feigning. But this is a de- damn good step, understanding uh, sort of where these where these defensive. Uh, defensive techniques come from and what they could be correlated to you know are some toads more likely to do it uh if they have a post signaling on their bellies are they more likely to do it and more likely to sustain it things like that
1: yeah Interesting. one of the one of the pictures from the uh, paper is actually the an adult one of those ridges toads and um the underneath is mottled black and yellow so yeah yeah
0: yeah there's, uh, you could certainly see something going on because the top is I suppose quite cryptic. The bottom less so. The bottom's so. got
1: spooky wasp colours.
0: Right, wasps are easy to see deliberately, yeah. so so. It's
1: no accident yeah. they're black and yeah. yellow. Nearly said black and white. There's well, some wasps are black and white, but uh,
0: yes, there were there there were some. Yeah,
1: wasps. That is <laughs> getting sidetracked by wasps, but that's cool. I enjoyed that, and uh, yeah, a, uh, a, a a genus of toads I wasn't aware of. So that's really cool.
0: There you go, mate. That's what I got.
1: <laughs> well, well, it's quite predictable. Try and segue out of that. I can't segue out of that, but I will just have a brief mo- mention of how unsurprising it is to me that you went for toads over any other possible reptile or amphibian that you could have had.
0: Well, to be fair, like I was saying, I had two notes picked out. I was like, yeah, I'll do this one. Then it wasn't in Costa Rica, and I was like, yeah, I'll do this one. Then it wasn't in Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> neither yeah. of those were about toads they were both both snake related oh
1: that's so. cool well i i almost went for a toad just for the irony of it being me picking a toad despite the fact that they're like my sworn nemesis as a collective um <laughs> that is a that
0: is a barefaced lie
1: <laughs> yeah i love toads but uh yeah i actually went for a snake which is quite predictable and it's lucky we didn't both go for a snake. <laughs> uh so yeah i'll get into mine mine is about well it's from herpetological review um my method for finding this was to go download some issues of herp review and control f
0: i was that was literally going to be my next question (laughs) how on earth did you find it
1: i just downloaded the two newest herp reviews control f Costa Rica, the first one didn't have. A, oh yeah, no, the most recent one had like all that stuff about the underwater annals. Uh, yeah, the underwater annals. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But yeah. obviously we've uh, already talked
1: about that, so I was like, ah, oh, forget it, scrap this. So there's awesome, of that stuff. Yeah, actually, that might be the 2019 one. The 2021 might have had nothing. I can't quite recall. But regardless, um, in the 2019 edition of Herpetological Review, it's number 50. I found this paper about Microurus alani, Aaron's. Alan's Coral Snake um, Diet, and this is by Anderson and Liebel Um, I actually know Liebel Andrea, so hello Andrea if perchance you're listening to this Um, but yeah, this is a really cool observation two species of snake involved which are both quite mysterious, at least to me yeah, it's a fun observation which actually ends in a bit of a mystery because, well I won't I won't ruin it but um yeah basically Alan's coral snake that's Alan a double l e n not Alan as in <laughs> your mate Alan but yeah Alan's coral snake your classic coral snake uh, it actually adheres to the red on yellow killer fellow red on black you're okay Jack because it does have red next to yellow in it's bands and it's got nice fat red bands you know it's your classic tricolored, black red and yellow um, coral snake big fat red bands Little tiny skinny yellow ones, just a scale or two wide, and then some quite big chunky black ones as well. And it's quite big for a coral snake, actually gets to a maximum size of 132 centimeters, but most adults are between 50 and 60 centimeters, and those are total lengths, rather than SVL, so that includes the tail. This is a species, Micrurus alani, that is distributed in the tropical lowland forests of the Caribbean slope, from eastern Honduras to eastern Panama, And including Costa Rica. Critically. (laughs) Critically. So, um, yeah. Like many snakes, Alan's coral snake likes to eat things that are shaped like tubes. I've said it before, Ben. I'll say it again. Lots of snakes like eating tubes because they fit so neatly inside them. And they don't need that massive freakish head to pull it off. Um, Yep. That's true. Piping pipes. You know, we can all empathize with that. Spaghetti is lovely. Um these snakes yeah, in particular right. yeah, spaghetti is better than the right come on man
0: nah I'm putting it in the alright bucket what about noodles? noodles are better than spaghetti
1: yeah well noodles basically are spaghetti it's just how you frame it
0: nah they're different mate <laughs> they're different <laughs> um,
1: so basically these snakes Alan's coral snake they love to eat marbled swamp eels which are huh. synbrancus marmoratus that's their absolute favourite food they love these swampy marbly eels but their second favorite is Sicilians, and what? Yeah, so there's not a huge amount of evidence for this. There is one paper that I found. Apparently, particularly at higher elevations, their diet might switch to Sicilians. This is all kind of like suggested based on a few observations. One regurgitated a Sicilian. Um,
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But, one ate a Sicilian one time. But. but the
1: thing is, they're like widely regarded to have. Swamp eels is like a major component of their diet, but they yeah. go higher in elevation than swamp eels do. Obviously, swamp eels only live in the water, but they also don't occur at higher elevations where these so snakes occur. So it's kind of right, theorized. So they've got to be that, eating something. Yeah, yeah, they might well be eating a lot of Sicilians. Okay, um but basically they like tube foods, and they subdue their prey with this really hefty neurotoxic venom with the so-called three finger toxins, um, very abundant in the venom. Uh, it really messes with your nervous system, paralyzes, and then, yeah, once the prey is paralyzed, they swallow it and eat it. And in that vein, on the 6th of August in 2018, um, the authors of this paper were walking through the waterfall trail behind the Esquinas Rainforest Lodge in La Gamba, Costa Rica, inside Piedras Blancas National Park, and they spotted a an allen's coral snake around 75 centimeters long and it was in quite an unusual position so its tail was coiled up around some roots and then it was stretched out straight all the way across a stream and its head was latched on to the tail of a snake the body of which was disappearing down a hole what <laughs> imagine coming across that you would be like well uh, what the heck um And so, yeah, this coral snake was basically locked in mortal combat with a small brown snake, which was probably Coneophanes phissidens, a.k.a. the brown debris snake, which is a small burrowing colubrid, which just lives in debris and is brown. And apparently (laughs) (laughs) the coral snake had this uh, brown debris snake in its clutches. It was like bitten on to the tail and presumably trying to envenomate the snake and kill it and eat it. So the authors watched this quite slow, probably quite boring duel for about half an hour and (laughs) it appeared the debris snake was dead. Um, I assume it had like lost its muscle tone. Snakes go floppy, don't they? And um, apparently the coral snake started to rearrange itself, started swallowing it and trying to pull it from the hole. At this point, um, the authors decided... Right, let's go for a little wander. They probably wanted to see what else was on offer. And they walked around for another 25 minutes before they came back. And when they returned, both snakes had mysteriously disappeared. So presumably the coral snake ate the dead snake and then left. But you can't say with any certainty. But certainly it tried to eat this snake. And uh, yeah, this appears to be the first account of Alan's coral snake predating another snake however in the course of my reading i did find um a reference to a book called snakes of costa rica distribution taxonomy and natural history published by solozano in 2004 now i don't have access to this book um but Uh, apparently
0: classic classic book
1: classic book um but if anyone does go to page 791 and tell us what it says about them eating snakes because it it's alluded or to just send they, us yeah,
0: yeah send us a picture
1: send us a picture scan that book yeah send us
0: or, or scan it if you fancy
1: yeah yeah or yeah well scanning and taking a picture of the same thing these days aren't they um mm. I don't, yeah like it would be interesting to know what it says on that on that book but certainly as far as I could find and the authors say this is the pub first published account of the eating snakes so it's pretty cool this like leaf litter dwelling extremely venomous elapid mini colorful snake is lurking around and apparently eating other snakes which also like rooting around in debris so there's these kind of miniature quite exciting little snake-based interactions going on on the forest floor of costa rica which you wouldn't have known about
0: nope that's pretty neat yeah because if there's one thing harder to see than a snake it's a snake eating another snake
1: yeah it's pretty rare isn't it
0: yeah because that's i mean that's the chances of seeing two snakes and that one actually eats snakes.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a. That's a good find. You'd be excited because there's two snakes. Then you'd be a little bit sad. But then you'd be happy again because it's cool.
0: <laughs> it would. Yeah, it would be a roller coaster, let's face it. It would
1: be too much, actually. It'd be emotional. I'm yeah, I'm glad, not sure if
0: my heart could take it.
1: I'm, not, I'm glad I wasn't there. But um, yeah, really I'm cool. I'm getting just
0: like thinking about it.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's a really cool thing. Um, yeah, Chris Anderson is a chameleon guy whose papers we've covered on this subject before. So I'm not sure. What was going on in Costa Rica. But um Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Ah, good stuff. So that wraps up we couldn't really find a new species for Costa Rica. We did find one, but it had a rubbish name and um we're just not tolerating that kind of nonsense. So forget it. <laughs> if you're thinking about publishing a species with a rubbish name that we disapprove of, then um you're not gonna get covered on our podcast. And that's the yeah, way it is.
0: That again. <laughs> yeah, take that anonymous person <laughs> be- who
1: doesn't know who we're talking about. <laughs>
0: i mean that that's a that's the privilege of of having your own podcast right mm-hmm. we make the rules here damn it
1: yeah we run this show literally it's a two-man show and we're the two men so
0: deal so so what do we got
1: we got a pretty cool new species haven't we shall i i'll introduce it Nankivell, yeah. Guaran, Horsten, Shine, Rasmussen, Thompson and Sanders 2020. So this literally came out like within the last couple of weeks. Big news. Everyone's very excited about it. A new species of turtle headed sea snake, Emidocephalus ilapidae, endemic to Western Australia, published, of course, in Zootaxa.
0: These guys are great.
1: They are. They're so cool. They've got
0: hilarious little faces.
1: They've got the dumbest face of any snake, excepting maybe anacondas.
0: Yeah, but, like, dumb in a lovable way.
1: Yeah, they literally... They're called turtle-headed snakes, and it's because they literally look like a little happy turtle. It's so funny. They've literally <laughs> got these, like, funny little blunt faces, a little smiley face, like... Ooh. It's hilarious. And, um, yeah, they deserve all the love and attention that they get. Um We talked about them before, didn't we? Emidocephalus, this genus of fully aquatic true sea snakes, family alapidae, just like the coral snake I was just discussing. And they generally occupy shallow coral reef habitats in Australia, New Caledonia, the Philippine Islands. Uh, There was one found in Vietnam and Japan. So they like these warm seas. And they actually are weird because... While most sea snakes are highly, highly venomous, the venom systems of snakes in the genus emidocephalus have actually fallen by the wayside because they've evolved a taste for fish eggs. And they cruise around the seafloor trying to find eggs mm. in a manner that has been compared to mammals grazing. So they're basically the closest thing a reptiles have to manatees.
0: Oh yeah, they're like long, stretched out, stripy manatees.
1: And they've got a more endearing face mm. than a manatee. I'm just going to say it.
0: I'm not going to fight you. If you're looking thought, for a fight, you ain't for going to find one.
1: You'll just play dead again and I won't know what to do. I'll feel awkward.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: the authors here have integrated mitochondrial and nuclear genetic data with morphological evidence. So we've got all three boxes ticked, which we like, despite not having a f- full understanding of what that all means. And <laughs> um,
0: it's, it's worth mentioning.
1: It is worth mentioning. And yeah, based on the results, they were very convinced and convincing in describing emidocephalus from western, from coastal Western Australia as a new species, which brings the number of endemic sea snakes in Western Australia to six, which is six more than the UK.
0: (laughs) Nice, nice facts. Nice way to bring that home.
1: You like that? Yeah. Mm. So uh, I, well, I appreciate I can,
0: imagine, I can imagine zero sea snakes.
1: Yeah. I appreciate it. So that's feedback. what
0: my life is most of the time.
1: Yeah. My, my life. I've seen one sea snake once and um, I was scuba diving and it was really far away and it was on the surface and all my instincts told me to go towards it, but I would have surely died of the bends. So I had to just ignore it. Mm. It was one of the tougher things.
0: I've seen two sea snakes on two different occasions. No, Sweet. one sea snake on two different occasions. It, it, two occasions where I each time saw one sea snake. Are you being followed by a sea snake? <laughs> Presumably not the snake. Like, oi,
1: oi, Ben, oi, Ben. <laughs> you like, get away from me, God. Jesus. <laughs> where have you seen a sea snake then?
0: In the Philippines.
1: Ah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Wasn't oh, this guy? Wasn't this guy, no. Um, this one's from Western Australia. And the holotype was actually collected from a place called Shark Bay. Shark Bay. Now, there's one image that sort of comes to mind when you hear the words Shark Bay, and that is a bay, and I'm not going to use the word infested, a bay replete with many sharks.
0: Fat. Exactly. Heavy. Sodden.
1: Yeah, turgid with sharks. And there are, in fact, at least 28 shark species in Shark Bay, the most impressive oh. of which is the tiger shark, which we all know is named after a tiger. No tigers
0: were named after sharks If only that were true
1: Really? Mm. I know that's not true I said really, I know it's not true Oh yeah, it's
0: one of those land tiger
1: sharks (laughs) You're pulling my leg, aren't you? Um, The most common, ironically The most common shark that you'll see if you go to Shark Bay Is the nervous shark Which is a small (laughs) shark That gets its name due to its timid nature This is honestly words from the internet This is is real Um, Or at least... As far as I could tell, it's real. There's actually a shark we call called this a one, the
0: coward shark, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on account of its yellow belly.
1: <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there really is a nervous shark. Apparently, it is very timid. I don't know how you can tell a shark is feeling timid. Like, it's just like it wants to come over, but it's too shy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, this Shark Bay and um, other areas along the coast of Western Australia is home to this new species of sea snake. And they've called it Emidocephalus aurarius, which is Latin for coastal and refers to the coastal, Western sorry, the coastal Western Australian distribution of the new species. So they're found in coastal areas. And if you look at the range map, they literally are just glued to the coast of Western Australia, like in the centre. And um, other species of Emidocephalus generally are found on coral reefs, typically on really nice, clear oceanic reefs away from coastlines of major landmasses. So they're like eating fish eggs, cruising around these really lovely, beautiful, like miraculous reefs. But the new species, Emydecephalus aurarius, is actually different because it's found on soft-bottomed shores. And it does probably eat fish eggs, but we can't be sure. But um, they've actually been caught in waters between 40 and 60 metres deep, uh, in the Pilbara coast, and then in Shark Bay, it's over 20 metres. And they're usually caught during the day, so they're probably diurnal. So they're in, you know, relatively deep water, um, mooching around eating fish eggs.
0: I mean, it sounds like a good life, doesn't it?
1: I mean, yeah, it could be a lot worse. Like, could be a lot worse. Yeah, and uh, we haven't talked about what they look like. They look hilarious. They've got the silly face that is typical of the species, of the uh, genus, I should say. Um funny little face but there are there's two there's two kind of color types depending on the population so ones from pilbara pilbara are sort of mostly black with very faint white stripes and the ones found in shark bay are black and sort of a muddy white stripes um hmm. but quite striking you know they've definitely got that black and white watch out kind of coloration
0: and a slightly different colored head
1: yeah, sort of, slightly browner head, and the head looks like the tail quite a lot. The tail's paddle-shaped, like all, all good sea snakes.
0: Well, I mean, if you look at the uh, if you look at uh, figure five c, that one has a very distinct head with its sort of being darker brown with sort of yellow spots on it. Very distinct.
1: That is a different species. That's that is a uh, different the ringed sea snake. Yeah, it's confusing. They always do that.
0: Wait, been... are you sh- are you sorry, sure?
1: no, you're right. I'm on the wrong. Se- I'm on the wrong figure.
0: Ah, <laughs> Sorry, we Ben.
1: Five uh, C. Oh yeah, you're quite right. It does have a fun right. little so they,
0: got, they got some some interesting variability going on. Yeah. Um, I stand corrected. Size wise, what are they? Sixty centimeters SPL with an additional sort of twelve centimeters tail length for the holotype. So, you know, these are these are respectably sized sea snakes. How long did you say? Sorry. Sixty centimeters SPL with an additional mm. twelve for the tail.
1: That's a manageable size, isn't it? It's a good size.
0: Pretty good. Pretty Mm. good.
1: Yeah, they're fun snakes. I really encourage everyone to look at the photo of this snake's face
0: (laughs) (laughs) and just appreciate its sort of cuteness. It's dozy cuteness. What's the common name? Have they given it a common name? I can't say I remember seeing a common name. No, I do not see a common name. Oh, well, then it's up to us. Okay.
1: Um. Uh. I'm just searching the paper for a common name to make sure that we're not standing on anyone's toes.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, like that would stop us. egg eating egg eating Licorice... Sea-snake.
1: Egg-eating licorice sea-snake. There we go. That's I mean, it.
0: licorice isn't very good because they're all black and white and stripy, so licorice isn't very descriptive. And you're naming something after a root. So, I mean, really, that's quite weak. Yeah. What about
1: the soft-bottomed... Turtle guy.
0: Soft bottom turtle guy?
1: Yeah. Because they like soft bottoms on the sea and they have a face like a turtle.
0: Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, we'll roll with that. Sweet. Soft bottom turtle guy. <laughs>
1: also known as Emidocephalus aurarius. If you want good to be a good looking specific. snake. Yeah. and well, uh,
0: welcome to welcome to published science.
1: Exactly. Wonderful. So, yes, our new species of bi week, a brand new species of turtle headed sea snake. Very cool. And that. Pretty much concludes the species of the bi week. Um, any other right. business?
0: Any other business? Uh, hey, you want some more shameless self promotion?
1: Yeah, Definitely. of course you do.
0: Hey, new, another new preprint out because those don't get old. Um, so we had a fun one about King Cobra stuff last time. This one, probably less interesting for general readership, uh, certainly, other the podcast. But we threw out a little opinion piece on transparency and open science practices in herpetology. Did a sort of rough and ready assessment of herpetology journals based on journal policies targeting things like open data, open code, uh, clear guidelines for data citation, stuff like that. Because basically a lot of fields that deal with human health and stuff, they have really upped the ante in terms of making things accessible and open and transparent. And ecology perhaps is lagging a little bit behind and more specifically herpetology, we were wondering how how they were doing and it's not looking particularly great. But what's sort of nice about it is that a lot of the policies that need to be implemented, like data access statements, stuff like that, super cheap, super easy to do. So it was a little piece being like, hey, look at these other fields they're pushing on changing up pushing towards more transparency we should probably try and keep up where we can where we can afford to and just some stuff on that
1: good message um trying should we share that we can share that to the herp highlights page and then people can
0: click it very easily yeah yeah if if people are keen you know it's all it's it's you know the process of doing science stuff and science reporting so it's probably not everybody's cup of tea but it's uh what I've been working on for the past like month or so. So,
1: There you go. An insight into the mind of Ben. Don't look too close because there's no returning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool, man. Nice one. That's really awesome. Um, I have some other business too. Uh, we had an email from Christopher McLaughlin. And this was very interesting. This was a follow-up from our episode about... It was... Oh, it was last episode. It was the detectability one about the dogs catching the tortoises. Or not catching, Aye. but pointing the tortoises. And yep. um, Christopher emailed us a very interesting tale about him being a young child. His father was a hunter and actually had a Brittany Spaniel. And that Brittany Spaniel had pups, or, you know, was the father of pups. Not sure on the gender. And it was like a... Well, had sex. A, I had a batch of mutts, which were like a mixture of Brittany, Spaniel, and Labrador, and who knows what else. Anyway, these dogs would accompany him and his family on camping and hiking trips to the Missouri Ozarks, which I think is where the, where Ozark is filmed, which makes this very exciting. And, what? um, what? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a TV series on Netflix with, um, uh, what's his name? Guy looks like Paul Rudd. But yeah, anyway, so back in the day, Chris and his father would, or Christopher and his father would go to the Ozarks, and their dog would return frequently from a little scamper about in the woods with a three toed box turtle, Terrapine carolina, tringuis, Cryungus, clamped inside its jaws, gently, very gently. And hmm. the turtles were never harmed by this, uh, he says, probably more annoyed, because the dogs have a soft grip which is, you know, Keith being a good pointing dog. Um, He said he's referred to this as, he's heard this referred to as mouthing, although he might be inventing that. Um, But, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? Soft mouthed dogs
0: for hunting. You don't want them crushing everything. So that's
1: really cool. So this is actually, you know, when he was a kid, his dog would actually go and seek out turtles. And he goes on, he said he had a look in his, book the handbook of turtles the turtles of the united states canada and baja california uh, from 1952 by the late great university of florida professor archie carr and he said there's a portion of the book where it says this turtle the one we're referring to the three-toed box turtle is regarded by quail hunters as an undesirable animal because of its alleged fondness for quail eggs and because of its susceptibility to being pointed by bird dogs And apparently, bird hunters often refer to these turtles as stink birds. So, yeah, certainly. It's just
0: such a strange scenario where someone's sending out a dog to return a quail and they come back with a turtle.
1: It's weird, isn't it? Or at least they point the turtle. And it's just like, why do you keep pointing turtles? Then presumably the dog has to be (laughs) re-educated.
0: And the turtle's just sitting there covered in quail egg.
1: Just all
0: over it. I, wonder, oh, if, I wonder, if, that wonder if explains it. I wonder if they
1: actually do eat quail eggs.
0: I wouldn't put it past them.
1: I can see it because quails nest on the ground, don't they?
0: Yeah, and turtles—they live on the ground. Live on the ground. Yeah, it's a recipe for quail Armageddon.
1: Yeah, it really is. But um, yeah, that was a really cool message. It's really cool to hear that someone's actually experienced a dog hunting for a turtle and without any formal training. Yeah, which really just lends credence to this idea that. Dogs should be in charge of turtle conservation. Uh,
0: maybe in charge is a bit much, but certainly, uh, certainly yeah. involved.
1: Yeah, definitely involved. Yeah. So, yeah, that's um, my other business. Uh, the other thing we heard someone ask us about the dreaded coronavirus um, and how it pertains to our work. Now, if you're a bit fed up of hearing about coronavirus, which is completely understandable, and uh, we've gone out of our... well, we haven't gone out of our way, it's been... it hasn't been in our way. But we haven't really talked about it because, like, everyone's talking about it. You know, it's a worldwide pandemic, it's kind of at the forefront of everyone's minds. But uh, yeah, we had a question as to how it pertains to our lives and our work and our research specifically. So, we're just going to spend a couple of minutes talking about it. If you're sick sick and tired of coronavirus or if it upsets you, whatever feel free to skip there's nothing else you're gonna miss this is the end
0: yes this this is the end bar virus chat
1: for virus chat so yeah for me it is um put the uh put the brakes on fieldwork basically entirely um bang university's got a month-long ban on fieldwork to the end of april so that's another few weeks um so yeah missing out on some data collection We're also, obviously there's a lot of strict regulations about people meeting and stuff like that, so there's a high likelihood that a lot of my fieldwork, certainly like radio transmitter insertions and stuff like that, won't be happening this year. Um, So like a lot of people, I've just had to kind of try and think about other ways that I can keep myself busy um, and try and get what fieldwork I can get done subsequently um you know maybe this summer if not it'll have to be next summer and thereafter um and the other influence has been that pretty much all labs have been turned over they've either stopped doing anything or they've been turned over to coronavirus research so um one sample in particular that i was waiting to get back is in a minus 80 freezer indefinitely so yeah some of the genetic investigations we're doing have also been put on hold temporarily so um certainly there has been an impact but um yeah, that's a worldwide pandemic for you, I guess. What about you, Ben?
0: Um, mine's considerably less traumatic than that. Uh, Uni's shut down, but uh, they seem to be still paying me. So that's quite nice. So It's uh, always good. <laughs> relatively normally for me. Um, I, I didn't work at the uni, like on site. I was always working remotely. So that, that hasn't really changed much uh data collection for me is all somebody else's problem so i don't really have to worry about that um you know like the king stuff that that data was what like two years old already so there's been a lot of well, we've thankfully got a, a backlog in uh, field data which hasn't been dealt with so in terms of stuff to be getting on with i've i'm i'm absolutely absolutely fine um other stuff i was working on was data collected you know via online means uh be that sort of web scraping stuff or meta science stuff you know data review stuff simulation stuff basically where the data isn't uh field-based uh collaborations and things were already remote so that hasn't been too much of a change um so, like nitty-gritty of the, the logistics, eh, not not too much uh, different for me. Um, it's more just the you know psychology of what's what's going on and, and motivating yourself to work and whatnot. Yeah, Which uh, is a you know different different uh, thing entirely. So, I well, I said you know a couple of preprints out in the last couple of weeks. Things are still plodding on, uh, trying trying to just keep that going. Um, mm trying to think if there's anything more exciting like popping out that I can point to and be like, this is what I'm working on. But, I mean, the preprints are pretty much it. Um, Waiting for things to get back from review. Uh, In terms of that, I've heard very few journals sort of say that anything's changed in those regards. Obviously, researchers on the ground actually doing the reviews and stuff, their lives are obviously a bit more up in the air and mixed. So, there's like no reason to be impatient with these things Uh, the only journal I've seen that put something out uh, specifically about it was Oikos basically saying hey don't worry about deadlines and stuff if you need more time for this that and the other don't worry about it we're going to take it quite easy and be quite relaxed about things it was quite nice Um, they desk rejected our paper anyway so that doesn't matter (laughs) yeah man I was (laughs) going to say um, like I got a rejection
1: I got a rejection letter two days ago so Amphibia reptilia is certainly still operating (laughs) oh
0: yeah yeah, well, yeah. Desk, desk rejections are, you know, that only requires them to go by one person for most journals. Oh, yeah. Unless mm-hmm. it's Methods in Ecology, then they bump it around to multiple editors, which is quite impressive. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, you know, we're just, just pretty standard for me, I feel. Um, it's, it's the benefits of having put a lot of my eggs in data analysis baskets instead of field stuff baskets, which is sort of just good luck, I guess.
1: Mm, yeah, well, yeah. It wasn't exactly it. something I was planning for. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those ones, isn't it? Like, I don't know. The thing is, it just is, it's so many people having these same issues. It kind of puts things in perspective. Like, yeah, my fieldwork's been put off, but, you know, so be it. We'll work, we'll work around it and do what we can. And I think um, yeah. universities are understanding and lenient of that issue. And I think yeah, we're going to see a lot of papers coming out in 2021, which are missing a portion of data having been collected as a result of coronavirus. Right.
0: So that so that's that's. I mean, I feel like we've both been quite lucky in regards of having projects that span a decent amount of time.
1: Oh yeah, mate. Um, yeah. I
0: think it's it's master students and stuff that've been hit the uh, hit the hardest with this, where that one field season for that project. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's tricky.
1: Yeah, we've got tricky. a master student looking at um, deferring as a result of this, which is yeah doesn't feel like a great thing that people have to do it's a shame but um no nope. yeah it sucks
0: yeah yeah it so i mean is is that is that tackling the question we got I given so. sort of how it's how it's impacting us me yeah. not so much with you quite considerably
1: mm. yeah i think so yeah there we go we talked about coronavirus
0: <laughs> well yeah that's i mean that's essentially it right mm. we're probably not going to bring it up again uh, unless something dramatic impacts the actual running of the podcast, but again, you know, this was always done remotely. So unless unless one of us is completely indisposed, things are uh, likely carry on as as normal. Yeah, or as normal as we can make it.
1: Yep, 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 yep. Um, so yeah, and you might have noticed the increased frequency of our podcasts as a result of being at home all the time. <laughs> so that's actually. Uh, worked out slightly in the favor of the podcast, which is at least one very small silver lining in a horrible situation.
0: Yeah, I guess so. <laughs>
1: um. Cool. Well, I think that's it. I think that's it. Um, we've done that justice. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our episode about Costa Rican herpetofauna. fauna. So thank you very much, Richard Southworth, yeah. uh, for being our Patreon and making such a good selection. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in the not too distant future for some more herpetological goodness.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it started a little bit grim, but, you yeah, uh, know, what's what's the, I was trying, I was trying to turn something grim into something positive and then my brain just shut down. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like,
1: couldn't figure, your brain's like, I couldn't, don't try and be positive.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it started with something grim, but really the takeaway has been impressive study that we'd learn a, a lot from um, and and uh, really provides a lot of a lot of motivation for doing more for tropical snakes perhaps um and a couple of notes that are just sort of fun and interesting about natural history stuff so mm. i think that's that's it
1: if you want to get in touch with us you can herphighlights at gmail.com is our email address if you want to become a patron and pick an episode like richard southworth has you can go to patreon.com slash highlights. um we haven't mentioned the Red Bubble store for a while. Um, ben does really cool artwork, and we put it on things that you can wear, or drink out of, or carry around, or have on your bed, <laughs> depending on how keen you are on reptiles. Uh, so that's um, just search for herpetological highlights, Red Bubble. You'll find that. And yeah, we've got some
0: more in the works. We have some more low-key what's stuff me, in the works.
1: Yeah, which is what's made me talk about it, and the stuff that's coming is a very exciting. Um, and I say that objectively as someone who has had absolutely no input on what it is. Uh, it's That's true.
0: Ba- You've had absolutely no input on what it is, <laughs> is whatsoever.
1: <laughs> I haven't even helped. In fact, I I probably hindered. Um, <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, you can also we you know we're on Twitter and Facebook and all that jazz. So um, yeah, if you want to message us, you can. If you want to leave us a review, even better. Hear that at the end of some podcasts. Um,
0: Aye. Yep. Yeah. What but, about?
1: thanks for listening I think is all that remains to be said
0: absolutely thank you for listening
1: worth the time you spent powering up
0: <laughs> <laughs> don't mock me